I'm Elena Landsberg-Lewis, your host of Grandmothers on the Move, the podcast that kicks old stereotypes to the curb. Come meet these creative, outrageous, authentic, adventurous, irreverent, and powerful disruptors and influencers. Grandmothers, from the living room to the courtroom, making powerful contributions in every walk of life. We know them most intimately as loving caregivers, the older women in our lives with a thousand stories about their grandchildren and pictures in their purses. In this podcast, you'll come to know even more about our grandmothers. They are galvanized, determined, and are guaranteed to get you thinking. What drives them? What are they up to? What is the potential of grandmother power and how is it changing the world? Grandmothers are on the move. You don't want to be left behind. Hi, it's Ilana. Welcome back to Grandmothers on the Move. And today I have a friend that I'm speaking to who was one of my mentors when I first started out doing work on women's human rights. Indai Sahor is a senior gender humanitarian advisor for the UN Interagency Standing Committee. She is, amongst many other things, currently working for the Pakistan United Nations Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs. And she's been working in conflict situations for the last few years as a humanitarian advisor, most recently in Iraq last year. And as I know her, a champion of women's rights and human rights the world over. Welcome and die to Grandmothers on the Move. Thank you. Thank you, Elena, for inviting me in. Wonderful to talk to you. I wanted to start with the work that you were doing when I first knew of you and met you over two decades ago now, um, when you were working with the so-called comfort women, who were all grandmothers at the time and were so courageous to talk about the sexual slavery that they endured during the war. And you had written to me in a note about their courage and fortitude. And I wonder, Indai, when you were working with them, you were a younger woman, and I don't think you were yet a grandmother yourself. What do you think about now when you think back to that time and the work that you did with what we know as the comfort women? I would really say, and thank you, Ilana, for remembering that beautiful time working with the comfort women. Because I think in all my years as an activist, and I have always been an activist pretty much all my life, my work, my 10 years with the comfort women was one of the most compelling work I've ever done in reaching out to the women who were raped, repeatedly raped. And that is why we coined the word sexual slavery by the Japanese Imperial Army, I mean, during the Second World War. And this was a historical event that nobody really recognized. And um, yes, I was uh, pretty young then. <laughs> I was not yet a grandmother. Right. Yes, that's right. But the impact of that work was tremendous because then I realized by the time when we started working on them, it started actually in 1991-92 when I first met the first Korean comfort women in, in Seoul, Korea. And then, of course, work looking for the comfort women in the Philippines. 
So that was a good time in the sense that you were looking for women who were survivors for an incident and a violation that happened 50 years ago. So they were all in their 70s, you know, and 80s even. So by the time we discovered them through the radio and many of these women come to our office, you know, testimonies and the stories of the women were beyond compelling because it was not only the systematic suffering of such horrendous crime committed against them, which was sexual slavery, but more importantly, their resilience to continue and go on with their lives. And some of them got married and had children. But I think this is where justice comes about. You know, even if a crime is committed 50 years ago, it never leaves a woman. The pain and the psychological suffering remains. And once it is told, there is no stopping any woman at any age to fight back and, you know, seek for justice. And this is what they did. And I'm not only talking about the comfort women in the Philippines. I'm talking about women from China, South Korea, uh, North Korea, Thailand, uh, Malaysia, the women from the Netherlands who became sex slaves in Indonesia and Taiwan and, of course, Japan itself. I mean, there were nine or ten countries esteemed of these women coming out from the different Asian countries that was occupied by Japan during the Second World War. Now, the beauty of this struggle, and I would say so, it continues up to today. There is no uh, stopping, you know, that courage. Young generation of Filipinos, of Koreans, of Japanese, of Malaysians, all of these countries continue to not only demand for justice, but more importantly, to tell that their stories be etched out in the history books, that this kind of crime should not be forgotten because otherwise it will be repeated again. So these women are still standing, a few of them who are still alive, the former comfort women of Taiwan, for example, the Taiwanese government has taken on their cause and has given them the highest integrity possible because the Taiwanese government thinks they should be taken care of for their suffering that happened 60, 70 years ago. We learn from this process. And more importantly, the young generation are continuing to take on the cause because they think It's not only important, but it also records the courage of these grandmothers, of these women in their very, very advanced age, that they should never be forgotten. They're filing a case against the Japanese government. They're demanding for compensation and reparation has actually redefined the meaning of what constituted compensation, what constituted reparation, and they shifted the gender dimension of humanitarian law and international law on gender-based violence during war. And this we learn from the women who some of them have never been to school. Some of them have never been graduated high school even. But it was their gut feeling and gut logic in their own courage to say, no, we need to put our story in the history books. That for them was a reparation. It's so true and and so deeply touching and distressing and inspiring at the same time. How did it change 
or did it change your activism and die? How did it shape at that point in your life, how you thought about the trajectory of women's lives and the kind of work that you were going to do around women's rights and humanitarian aid, violations and gender justice? Yes. Well, Ilana, it changes you tremendously. Mm -hmm. Not only because you listen to the stories of those violations, but more importantly, the continuing courage, the physical resilience, the mental resilience that goes with them, not only inspires you, but you also Mm -hmm. look at yourself and how you are able to cope with that. Mm -hmm. And I think for me, it really changed me. You know, the whole notion of grandmothers, um, because here the comfort women, when we started to interview them, they were all grandmothers. The youngest we had was 72. They, They were all grandmothers when we started to get their testimonies. And I saw how much it changed their lives tremendously. Because I remembered Lola Rosa Henson, the first Filipino comfort woman who came out and we interviewed her. She came, she came to our office, you know, her clothes were dirty. She was wearing slippers and really, you know, she didn't care about life anymore. But when we started talking to her and trying to get out that stories, she slowly transformed. I mean, I remember the third time she came to the office, I was shocked how well-dressed she was. And then her daughter told me, and she said she demanded new dress, she demanded new shoes, and then she started putting on a lipstick. So it not only transformed her physically and made her look younger, but her self-esteem back. They had the courage always, but because we supported them, we were there to be with them. That really mattered. You give the platform to them. You, we brought them to Tokyo and Japan. They met with the parliamentarians, with the foreign ministers, and they started talking about it. So literally from a small village that they have never left their village for 50 years all the way to Japan, that shifted the terrain for them in terms of their own knowing that they have the power to change, knowing that they can influence. And as I watch being, um, you know, crucial advocate in that whole process together with my other feminist friends, we saw that transition for 10 years and the struggle against the government of Japan, how it changed us, it changed them, it changed the whole diplomatic relations between the nine countries. In fact, I had a personal experience with that because when I was working at UNIFEM, we wanted to start a trust fund on violence against women so that we could get funds into the hands of grassroots women's groups working on race violence. It was the Japanese government who first gave money to that trust fund. And the reason they did it was because they were so aggravated that they were under a microscope around the atrocities committed against the comfort women that they wanted to do something that would show that they were taking some kind of action around violence against women. So it it had so many ripple effects. I think it was one of the first cases of rape as a strategy of war uh, that, that came to the world public consciousness. Of course, now we have many egregious examples of it, but I think that the Comfort Women really did bring to light the first embers of that fire that we know rages across the world. 
Yeah, and and thank you, Ilana, for bringing that point because yeah, that was really true. I think at that point in time, that contribution in the setting up of the Violence Against Women Fund with Unifem for me was a push, you know, in the right direction. I mean, it put the Japanese government to light that they have to do something about it. I would like to add more on the case of the comfort women, language of sexual slavery. It was the comfort women who brought that to the United Nations. Yes. I remember at the Commission on Human Rights, we kept on saying sexual slavery. And then later on, from the case of the comfort women, I moved on to the gender justice and lobbied this issue. issues to the International Criminal Court. And now it's part of the statutory construction of the ICC, recognizing sexual slavery as crimes against humanity and war crimes. So yes, I think we should look at it from that context. The evolution of older women, women in their advanced age, old grandmothers, you know, we sometimes don't recognize this contribution. And that's why I'm really glad that, you know, you're giving voices to grandmothers mothers in your work in Africa uh, with the grandmothers who are taking care of those children to the impact of all these grandmothers working in different fronts are being recognized now. So when you go back, and I remember this very well, in 1993 at the World Conference in Human Rights, you were also there in Vienna, remember? Yes, I sure do. Yeah. <laughs> the beginning, my, my fledgling years of the youngster <laughs> doing this work. <laughs> Uh, you're so humble. But, you know, when we started there in Geneva, when we brought the, the Korean comfort women to testify at the Vienna Tribunal, the women from the former Yugoslavia, the women from Croatia and Bosnia-Herzegovina, they were very, very clear that they said the only reason they came to Vienna and to speak about the rape that they went through was because they heard of the comfort women. And they said, if these women from Asia had the courage to do that, we can do that as well. So I think it should be recognized how much the case of the comfort women has contributed to the development of the recognition of violence against women in war and armed conflict, a recognition that is, I have to say, constantly denied. I was in Iraq last year and we're recording sexual violence in tremendous numbers, you know, of the Yazidi women who were raped by the ISIL. And I said, I've been working on this for, you know, 30 years and I'm still recording. And because as long as the violence continues, then our activism should never stop. Yes, and I, I love the way you talk about it, and I, I remember learning this from you and the other mentors I had who were doing this kind of activism, that at the same time that there was a profound recognition and an agony, a real agony around the violations and the victimization of these women, that there was at the same time amongst the women activists supporting them and working with them as they themselves went through a journey to become activists on their own behalf, a very important recognition of their courage and their agency so that they were not ever depicted or put forward or carrying themselves just as victims, but that it was extraordinarily important that everyone understood the dignity, the courage, and the clarity that they had around their entitlement to their human rights. That was a very early lesson that I learned working with feminist and women's rights activists that I've carried with me throughout my life, because I think it's a lens uh, that is so terribly important. 
And I think if I may add to what you're saying, this is for me what, you know, young generation should take on. You have to commit to it. You know, you you have to have the heart to do it. You know, it's a commitment. It's, it comes from your heart. You, you do it because you have to do it. You know, it's not a career path in the real sense of the word because there's so much sacrifice <laughs> along the way. Mm-hmm. But once you do it, you know, nothing can replace it. Absolutely. I know exactly what you mean. I'm not yet a grandmother, um, but I know you are, and I know you have a new little grandchild to celebrate. Um, (laughs) I have seen the pictures on Facebook, beautiful little grandchild. And I wonder, Indai, for you personally, now as a grandmother, does it change the lens? I know it doesn't change the activism or the commitment or the passion uh, or the sacrifices that you continue to be willing to make. But does it change the view of it that you bring to it now as a grandmother yourself? Oh, yes, very much. You know, my, my friends who are grandmothers, he said, it would even change your schedule. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, it does. It does. I mean, really, I mean, here am I assuming directly, you know, the moment he was born. But when there's a baby around in the family, it changes the terrain of how you have to care again. It changes how you start, you know, taking care of life again, of that nurturing, of that loving. It's just beyond comfort, you know, it's beyond happiness. I was saying it brings you flights of joy that you haven't had for quite some time time seeing you know a baby laugh or smile and I know it will change me now wherever I will be deployed in terms of my humanitarian work immediately once I get the break I will be flying back here (laughs) (laughs) of course no so I, I truly believe even that changes me a lot but I think what is more important is really taking the that responsibility of being a grandmother to another level because, you know, I think I would like to say that we should always be constantly, if given the opportunity, continue our activism. We, yes, we are grandmothers and we would love to take care. I mean, of our grandchildren. I would love to do that. But of course, he has a father and a mother and a family. So, But what I'm saying is that it changes you in a different way. It changes you to do more work for me. He has to know what I'm doing. You know, there's a better world out there that, you know, we constantly have to be active to integrate ourselves into for the better. You know, it's it's a legacy, I would say, if, if you don't mind my saying that, so that your grandchildren can can talk about it, can learn from it, and hopefully they would take on that responsibility in the future of, you know, championing for human rights, respecting people, respecting diversity, and just embracing the world for what it offers, but make sure that your human rights is respected. Our age as grandmothers should not stop us from taking the work that we have always done because it shouldn't. Our experience is there. We can still constantly share it. So I think that is where our energies would be coming from, from that little kid. (laughs) (laughs) That little tiny person has has so much power. I wonder what do you think and what what you're experiencing around that, the quality of that love that you feel and how that informs what you're doing now. I think part of that is about sharing wisdom. 
you know, mm-hmm. because that, you know, that immense love that you have for your, I mean, for your children, but also more importantly for your grandchildren, as you very well described, the relationship of your mother to your children, Ilana, is on the different level. I feel that too, you know, because I come with that certain level of, of wisdom, bringing culture and tradition that I knew are very positive and I hope that they will continue in our globalized world. You know, there, I mean, I grew up in with certain traditions and culture, like we hug a lot, we kiss a lot, but you know, there were cultures and traditions that came with the wisdom in it. And you want to continue that discussion with right. your grandchild. I want to carry that through with them. You know, that's pretty long time ago, but yes, it was a positive culture that has carried me that even what to eat, you know, the comfort food that we used to have, the language that we talk. We want to continue doing that. I tell my my daughter, she should teach her son to speak the language that we did in the Philippines, to teach him how to speak Tagalog or to speak Ilongo, the dialect, even a few words, because he, um, he needs to understand that there's another world out there that he is a part of. So those are some of the wisdoms that grandmothers bring about, you know, and you want that to continue because, I mean, I grew up, it was okay for people to come into our houses if there is no food, like there is no way you enter my sala without drinking a juice or taking in water and being fed, you know. There are certain traditions that I want them to continue doing, you know, sharing what you can, you know, always. Because now in a very technological world, sharing has a different meaning now. It's passing on photos. (laughs) Right. Yeah, but ours were material sharing all the time from sharing clothes to, you know, everything we have. And I've been thinking as I speak to so many grandmothers who are playing such powerful roles in their families and in our societies, that the invisibility of grandmothers in so many different spheres of our lives, not in our personal lives, everyone I speak to has a grandmother, one or two of them that they were close to or remember fondly or very close to now, but generally older women are not seen as elder stateswomen. And I do think that there's something extremely important if we think about it in a gendered way, which I know you always have insights about, that it's tremendously important for children who are growing up now. And I can't even imagine what it will mean for them to be seeing their grandmothers in a different light. I know that for the grandmothers who are involved in the grandmothers' campaigns supporting African grandmothers in Canada and Australia and the U.S., and for the grandchildren in your life and in the lives of the other women that I'm speaking to who are involved in their communities in so many ways and on the global stage, that the children who admire them and love them and feel close to them are getting a really invaluable insight and lesson into how important older women are to the improvement of the human condition and making the world a more humane place. Well, first, I would like to thank you, Elena, really thank you so much for bringing this into the open about women being revered as statesperson. For older women to be recognized, and I wouldn't even just say just older women, but for women who have been there to be recognized for the good work that they have done. I think this effort that 
you have initiated with grandmothers are breaking barriers. Because every time the history books are written, they always talk about the statesmen and hardly the stateswomen. And this is where we want to, again, change history. And I thank you so much, Ilana, for putting it out there and say, take a look again to recognize stateswomen who have changed the world in their own ways from the grassroots all the way to the global level, you know, Mm -hmm. and a lot of women leaders have done that in different perspectives, in different experiences. And I say this because, again, we have to constantly push for it. And I'm so glad you're pushing for it because so many grandmothers out there have stories beyond measure. I, for one, would say this. I'm now working in a humanitarian context. Yeah, I go to countries in conflict or countries who are in natural disasters. In my recent work in Iraq and in other countries, I see grandmothers taking care of children because their parents died in conflict. And their stories are horrendous because they have to cope up leaving their homes, becoming refugees, living in a totally different country with totally different languages and living in a camp. I mean, these grandmothers and I have met them and their stories are hardly heard. We haven't record the heroism of these grandmothers who had to take care of their grandchildren in another country or in a a displaced community that they had to start all over again without their homes, without clothes, without food, without nothing. And these grandmothers, I tell you, have done tremendous work to keep that dignity within their tents, you know, within their homes. And their stories should be told not only in the context of the suffering, but in the courage and dignity that they survive it. You see, that we have to redefine what we call statesperson or statesman or stateswoman, because we always look at it in the context of global leadership. You and I know that the paradigm for global leadership is a very male-oriented structure. Yes. What you say, you know, world leader, it's a man. So this we have to deconstruct again. When we redefine what constitutes a statesperson is someone who stood up, someone who had the courage to take on the onslaught of inhumanity and still stand strong. I mean, I could really tell you that the grandmothers and the single mothers who have been affected by the war and armed conflict, you know, in Syria, in Iraq, in Libya, in Yemen, in Myanmar, the Rohingyas, and all these other countries in Congo, they are still there, you know, fending to keep on life going on for small children. And nobody recognizes that at all. We are not patronizing them. What I'm saying is we need to reach out and keep on recognizing those strengths that are beyond measure. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And of course, when they're not recognized, then it means that they're not being considered or heard from in the halls of power where decisions are being made about their lives or where funding is being decided upon or where programs are being devised. And so... They really are left to keep their communities and their families and their societies stitched together 
without all of the support that comes when you are seen and understood as deserving of support. And that happens all the time. And I wanted to ask you before I let you go and die, I wanted to ask you, I was speaking uh, to your friend and mine, Edna Kino. We were talking about the group that she has been pulling together, the Lola activistas and we had quite a wonderful conversation about it she has many ideas and i see that she's moving now to get it off the ground and really start a kind of movement i wonder i know you were with her and talking to her yes tell me a little bit about that because i'd love to hear your perspective on the lola activistas in in the philippines Right. Well, you know, Edna and I were chatting about it, like, you know, we are now grandmothers, but we are still, you know, we work as the way we did, you know, when we were in our teenagers and we were in college in our 20s. So it never stopped. I mean, we go to rallies, we plan pickets and all of that. So we said, but we are, you know, the Lola Activista, which just was a natural word that we use. Uh, grandmothers are activists, so Lola Activista back in the Philippines. So, yeah, we wanted to evolve that because what we were thinking is let's start recognizing the continuing work that we do since we were young and up to now that we were grandmothers. Also because even when we were young activists, because we were women, we were not always recognized. So now we want to put that into the forefront, the leadership of the grandmothers out there to inspire the younger generation. Sure, because what Edna was talking about, of course, was all of the activism that was done under the Marcos regime. And now you have another regime that is increasingly repressive. And so the lessons that you all learned and the experiences that you have as activists under one oppressive regime when you were younger, the Lolas have to hand to the younger generation that you're working in solidarity with in this context. Yes. And also because, you know, when we were an activist at that time, we had no cell phones. You know, we were out there into the front line. We are being shot during the Marcos regime. We've been thrown into prison. All of those things that came our way. Now there are more opportunities in terms of communication that wasn't there. So that learning process should be handed back to the new generation who's fighting this regime back in our country. I mean, in the Philippines, from the Marcos dictatorship, now we have another upcoming dictator under President Duterte. So these are issues, really, really issues that we had to fight for. And I think the Lola Activista is really out there to say the issue of extrajudicial killing is a major issue in the Philippines. How do we combat them? The failure of the judiciary, how do we fight them? So it never ends. The the passing on to the next generation of this kind of work should be shared. I thank you for this whole conversation. I think it's such an an important contribution that you've made in the thinking about all of this, that it is on the one hand tremendously important to recognize the role that grandmothers are playing now as activists, as agents of change, as the transmitters of culture, as the ones who continue to have continuity and wisdom and experience that we all must be paying attention to, but also that grandmothers are holding really important history uh, and, and need to be the authors and the architects of the rewriting of that history so that we have the full uh, and critical picture 
of where women have been and what they've experienced and what they've done and how much that is missing. And I think that's something uh, incredibly important to hear and to think about and to make happen. Yes, yes. And I think if I may say, lastly, not only our grandmothers or women who have been into the front lines and the forefront of this activism, architects, but more importantly, have actually did change, you know, a lot of things in our societies and communities, that these changes has to be recorded, that these changes did not only transform our communities and our countries, but that it is constantly transforming even up to now. I always have faith when I speak to you and to Edna and to the other grandmothers that I have the privilege to speak to. There is right within this world. All of the wisdom and all of the passion and energy that the older women in our lives bring to this, uh, I, I can't help but feel that, that justice will come. It, it will. It must. I cannot thank you enough, Indai. What a pleasure to speak to you. And I feel that this is just the beginning of a conversation. So I will come back to you and we will continue. Yes. Thank you so much. Thank you, Ilana. This thank is you. Wonderful. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. I'm Ilana Landsberg-Lewis, your host of Grandmothers on the Move. If you want to find out more about me or the podcast, go to grandmothersonthemove.com and come back next week for another episode.